Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's good to be with you all. It's good to be back up here on Sunday morning with you. I had a lovely July uh, off traveling with my family and family camp. I'm thankful for the teaching that has happened here from Vinod and uh, from John Lee and from Austin and from Tim. And we have been in James together, and that's been a great joy. Uh, and so now here I am, the day after my 17th anniversary with my wife, um, and here to be in James uh, together with you. So if you have a Bible, would you open up to James chapter 5? James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to be this morning. James chapter 5, 1 through 6. I'll give you a moment to open there. Uh, while you're doing that, I have an announcement for you. So before we get started, I've got an announcement for you. Um, the Lord, in his great kindness, has allowed our church to be meeting here outside every single week for almost the last two years. And we are so fortunate here in Santa Monica to live in a place where we can gather for worship in gorgeous weather. I know that sometimes in the wintertime it gets a touch too cold. Other times in the summer it gets a touch too warm. But for the most part, we have been blessed. At the same time, we have been praying for a while about whether or not the Lord would open a door for us to move back indoors together. And so we have been seeking the Lord in that, making sure that we made a wise decision, but ultimately a good decision for the church. And as we've been praying for that, uh, we feel like the Lord has answered our prayer. Initially, our prayer was to be here, continue to be here at John Adams, specifically in the building back behind us. But that building is going to be a bit too big for us as a church. We're just not big enough yet as a church to fill that space. So we prayed and asked the Lord, so where would you have for us? And the Lord has provided a space for us. And so in about five Sundays from now, on five Sundays from now, the second uh, Sunday in September, September 11th, we are going to, as a church, begin to meet indoors just eight blocks away from where we meet now at Olympic High School in Santa Monica. And we are really thankful for that opportunity. It's going to provide us with the ability to not have to set up these easy apps where it's harder to see everyone. We'll be able to hear everyone a little bit better. Our communion won't be 180 degrees every morning when we take it. We'll be able to hear each other pray and sing a little bit more. And that space also has a space outdoors for us in case we need to be able to do that. But we don't anticipate we'll be able to do that. We're very excited about not bringing our own chairs. We're going to have chairs already set up for you. Uh, it's going to be, uh, we're going to look at the same screen together when we're singing and praying to the Lord together. And I, I want to be very clear about this. We know that COVID is still a thing. And so I, I want to be honest, we're, we're going to have masks available for you. And and we're going to encourage you, not just begrudgingly deal with you, but encourage you to wear one if you want to wear one. If, that's, if, you're, if you're feeling like, I need to do that, um, if you want to stay, if you're not feeling well, we're going to ask you to continue to stay home. We're going to ask you to listen to your doctors to make sure that you are making good health decisions. Um, and then we're going to make sure that we're supportive of you. But we are very excited that in about five Sundays from now, we're
We're going to be back together worshiping indoors just eight blocks away from here. So you'll get more information about that in the days and weeks ahead. And I'm, re- I'm hoping and praying that eight blocks is not the make or break issue for any of you. We're hoping that all of us are able to worship together over at Olympic High School at, on, on September 11th. So we're excited about that and looking forward to that as a church. And so uh, continue to pray for us as we prepare for that moment and, and doing that. And, and let's continue to be in relationship with one another, listening to one another well, supporting one another well, and making sure that we are the worshiping church that gathers together on Sunday. All right, that's my announcement. And now James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6 is where we're going to spend some time this morning. Hopefully you've got, um, you've got your Bible in front of you and you've had an opportunity to open to that text. We have been walking verse by verse through uh, James, and we find ourselves now in the fifth chapter with just a few sections left as we wrap up this series in the summer. But if you've got a Bible, this is James 5, 1 through 6. text says this, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Well, it's nice to come back to such an upbeat text this morning. We have been in James, and if you're unfamiliar with the book of James, really, if, if you read the New Testament, you get the Gospels, you get uh, uh, the Pauline epistles, which are the books written by Paul, and Paul spends a lot of time really banging on dead works. He wants you to know your works will not save you. What you do will not save you. You cannot be good enough. He bangs on dead works. And then here comes James, and James starts banging on dead faith. That if you've got real faith, your faith must be living. Real faith must make a difference. Real faith must be put into practice. And much of the book of James is about how do we put our faith into practice. And when we arrive at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James turns his attention to who our text will call the rich oppressors. The title of the sermon this morning is Warning the Wealthy. When you have children, you begin to speak in strange ways in their presence. Sometimes out of coercion, sometimes to bring them joy. I'll give an example of joy. If you've got a small child, if you're babysitting a small child and they're playing hide and seek, you're likely with another adult to be looking for that small child. And even though you can find that small child because they're often terrible at hiding, um, you might say to the other adult, do you know where Billy is? And the other one will say, I don't know where Billy is. I wonder where Billy is. And meanwhile, you can see Billy as his face begins to 
increase in its size of grin as he gets so excited that he can't be found. Two people talking to each other, but for the purpose of talking to another. That's an example of this kind of, this kind of speaking to someone for someone else's benefit with kids that's joyful. The other way it's less joyful is a way that it will sometimes happen in our home. Where either my wife or myself will say to the other something that where we're talking to each other, but it's not really for us, it's for someone else. We might say something like, I mean, I can't imagine that our kids would have the television on if they haven't done their chores yet, right? That would be crazy, right, Amber? And then you hear the pitter-patter of feet as they move quickly to the things that maybe they forgot to do. We speak to each other, but not to each other, but for someone else. In James chapter 5, James is speaking to these wealthy, rich oppressors. But he's not really speaking to them. He's speaking to them for the benefit of the church. That we might hear James speaking to the wealthy and that we might go, we might listen in to what he says so that we might ourselves be warned about what it is he says for them. Warning the wealthy. It's easy when you come to a text like James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and to read about the wealthy and to instantly conclude that James' warning to the wealthy must be to rich people. And let's be honest, none of us are rich, right? My family, we drive a 2003 Honda Odyssey. Our, our van is so old, it has reached the point where when we are driving, we only, only other people we see with our van are carpenters and painters who use them for storage. We got a knock on our door just a few months ago from a guy who said, hey, can I, I'd like to buy your van from you. For your family? No, no, no. To store some junk I've got. We've reached the junk storing status of our 2003 Honda Odyssey van. It has automatic doors that are no longer automatic. And when we drive around the city, it's so easy for us as a family to point out, I saw a Ferrari the other day that was waiting for AAA and I chuckled to myself. We see fast cars and expensive automobiles all over. And it's so easy when I'm driving to be like, that's the rich person, that's the rich person, that's the rich person. None of us, when we think of a rich person, none of us points to ourselves. If I said, who's rich? You don't think of yourself. This week I wanted to figure out, how rich am I? And so I went into this, I went to Google. Google tells you things like that. And I looked up a website that says, you know, put in how many, uh, how many people in your family, how much money you make, and where do you stack up in the rest of the world. And, and me and my family, we are in the top 10% of richest people in the world. So when we read this text, it is so common for me to go, it's those other 9%, those are the rich, while 90% of the world is pointing at me. I point that out this morning because I don't want you to read James 5, 1 through 6 and to come to the conclusion that this text has nothing for you. It does. Just by the privilege of living here in this city, by being where we're at right now, we are among some of the most wealthy people in the world. 
And there's nothing wrong inherently with wealth. Some of you might hear these warnings of the wealthy and you might begin to think to yourself, wait a second, to be wealthy, that's, that's bad. That's not true. The Bible does not say that to be wealthy is, is, is bad. Rather, the Bible talks about how we acquire and how we use our wealth. David was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who used his wealth to provide Christ himself with a burial tomb. The Bible is less interested in wealth and more interested in how we use our wealth and how we get our wealth. But make no mistake about it. The more you read the Bible and the more you read the Bible about riches and wealth, the more you must recognize that to have more wealth is to have greater responsibility. Greater responsibility before the Lord and before our neighbors. This last week, I was reading James 5. And simultaneously, it came across the news that, I guess, someone in Chicago won the Mega Millions Lottery for over a billion dollars. A billion dollars. And I read that story. And the first thing I thought was, man, that would be nice. And then I remembered James 5, and I thought that would be very, 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 very difficult. Beware, Jesus says, of money. If you have it, that's great. You're not going to hear me at all say having money is bad. What you're going to hear me do this morning and what James is going to do this morning is dive into the things we have and to think about how we use them, what they're for, and how we can live rightly before God with them. So this morning, we're going to do four warnings and one encouragement. If you are taking notes this morning, four warnings out of James 5, 1 through 6, and then one encouragement. The text of James begins with verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. It's very clear when you're reading this text that James is sternly warning those who are rich, those who have wealth. And so this text is filled with warnings, four of them, and then finally one encouragement. The first warning is the warning of hoarding, hoarding, the danger of hoarding your wealth. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. Your wealth has rotted. And moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now the biblical definition of hoarding is storing up, piling up heaps of treasure. And a Christian cannot be a faithful Christian. You can't live rightly before God if you are storing up piles of wealth. That is a sin. Now I know that the moment I start talking about storing up wealth and savings, some of us go, wait, hold on, this is complicated because what are, you're telling me I can't save? No, the Bible says you can save. In fact, the Bible encourages saving. Saving and hoarding are not the same thing. 
The key difference between saving and hoarding is that saving is a putting away for the use of something. Hoarding is putting away in order to protect, provide for myself without respect to what God may have for me in the future. And now, the, I'll just be honest with you, when you're reading the Bible, there's no, like, clear rules about this. There's no, like, fast and clear rule. I mean, yes, the Bible commands that we are to give generously to the kingdom of God. We take an offering every single week. We do that. The tithe in the Old Testament was the standard of returning 10% at a bare minimum of what God has given us back to the Lord. But how much should we save? And when are we hoarding? That is a question you have to ask before your God. But you should read this text recognizing that hoarding is a thing that you are to be warned about. And hoarding comes with it two great problems. The first problem of hoarding is it gives you a false sense of security. If you've got a Bible, keep your finger in James 5, because we'll obviously be there this morning. But flip backwards to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12. In this text, Jesus is teaching a parable about a rich fool. Luke chapter 12. I'll give you a second to get there. It's uh, verses uh, 13 all the way through 21, but we're going to just pick up here in verse 16. This, in this text, it's about a rich fool, a man who had an abundance of possessions. And Jesus says this, this is the parable, Luke 12, verse 16. Jesus said, it told this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And this rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat Drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Notice that in verse, that last verse 21. Rich for, them, for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The first problem with hoarding is it gives you a false sense of security. In verse 19, the rich fool says to himself, you've got plenty of grain, you've got it laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. One of the things that the Bible consistently talks about regarding the dangers of wealth is that if you have a lot, your temptation is to think, I've got myself covered financially. I can live the life I want to live. I've got all I need. And the Bible repeatedly says, careful that you begin to think to yourself that because you've got a lot of money that you can provide for yourself and live independently of the one who gave you everything. So storing heaps of treasure, hoarding, the sin of hoarding, creates a false sense of security. It also creates a false sense of longevity. 
You maybe have heard the phrase, use it or lose it. In James 5, it's very clear that James says, listen, your wealth gets corroded. Your clothes get corroded. Everything ends up in the trash can. Everything you purchase ends up essentially in the toilet or the trash can. You're just carrying it there. That's your job. You go to Target and you buy a bunch of stuff in between its Target and, the, and essentially the toilet or the trash can. You just carry it there. Right? That it corrodes. It all, it all has a finite time. Right? And so it, the reality is if you hoard, you, you, you have a false sense of longevity, we tend to think that what we have will last forever. It doesn't. I have a friend who recently retired. And I was talking to him about the challenges of retirement. And he was saying, you know, statistics say that once you get retired, you got to keep moving. If you don't keep moving physically, you'll begin to break down. If you don't keep using your body physically, it'll begin to break down. If you lay on a bed for too long, you develop bed sores. Your body actually does not want to just lay down all the time. Even your body, in order to keep it healthy, has got to keep moving. Use it or lose it. So the question that you ought to think about when it comes to your, your resources, your money, ought to be, does everything I have have a use in God's kingdom? The question we often ask ourselves is, how do I store this? But that's not the question you should ask if you want to be Christian. The question you should ask if you want to be Christian is, how do I use this for God and his kingdom? So let me ask you this morning. What do you have in your life that currently is not being used? I always often joke with my family, and I think I've done it here from the pulpit, about how it takes forever for me to get a bag of donated clothes from my house to the Goodwill. It does not take long from the house to the car, but my trunk is a black hole. And anywhere between six months and a year it takes to get to the donation center. If, I, if I'm slow to donate that, and it's just sitting in my trunk, it is not on the feet or on the legs or on the bodies of people who could use those clothes. Do you see the point I'm making? Our stuff is to be used. God has given you things to be used. So the question you should ask is not how do I store it, how do I use it? What in your life is not being used? So that's the sin of hoarding. The second warning First is hoarding. The second warning is exploiting. Verse 4. If you're back in James, James 5, verse 4. Look, he says, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters had reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. There was a problem in the ancient world, and that is that landowners who were wealthy had fields, and they hired workers to work their fields. And then many landowners, here's how they thought about things. They thought, here's what happens first. Whoa, we got an easy up coming down. We'll get that sorted out. Hey, five weeks from now, no more easy up. Um, remember that time, if you were here on Sunday, that time the easy up started blowing away? Man, that was wild. Um, all right, we're good. We're good? We're good over here? All right, great. Uh, exploiting. Um, so landowners would own land, hire workers to come and work the land, and here's what would happen. Many of the landowners would say that the first thing they needed to get from their crops were the ability to provide for themselves. 
The second thing they needed was to make a particular profit. And then if there were leftovers, then they would pay their workers. And so what happened is workers were often dependent on daily wages. And so James here is recognizing something that has always been a sin in the Bible, all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. If you are withholding wages from someone, you owe someone wages. If you're withholding that, that is a sin. If you are cheating people out of money that they rightfully earned, that is a sin. You know, this week I was looking up uh, Charles, it's Charles Ponzi. He's the one that we named the Ponzi scheme after. He, uh, he lived a, 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 over 100 years ago, and he famously stole money, created a whole Ponzi scheme where he was taking money from some and then giving it to others. And, and I was looking at famous people who have committed these kinds of fraudulent schemes. Ponzi is not the worst at being a Ponzi. The worst person ever for the Ponzi scheme is actually someone you may have heard of named Bernie Madoff. This, this blew my mind. I knew it, but I forgot it. I'm going to remind you. Bernie Madoff cheated people, thousands of people, out of $65 billion. $65 billion. He robbed from people out of their retirements, out of their accounts, out of their livelihoods, out of their well-being. He ruined so many people's lives. Then he went to jail and he died. And I will just tell you this. I, will, I would not want to in any way, shape, or form be Bernie Madoff standing before the Lord Almighty. That word for Lord Almighty is, is the God of the angel armies. And what does James say? It says, oh, just to be very clear, the wages you failed to pay the workers... Those wages you failed to pay, they are crying out against you. They have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of the angel armies. If you are rich and you love money, your temptation will always be to cheat people to get more money. But the Bible is clear. No cheating people out of money. Is there any money you owe anybody? Christians ought not to owe big debts to people. We ought to be people who pay off our debts. We ought to keep our promises. Do you keep your promises? Do you step on people to get more money? Do you cheat anybody? If you've ever done that, the, the wages that you have withheld, which might be in your bank account, they are speaking out against you. And you know who hears them? The God of the angel armies hears them. No exploiting of the poor. Man, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, I think this is a hard thing to put into practice. For some of us, it's, we too easily hear a text like this, the exploiting part, and we think, yeah, I don't think I do that. I, I wanna say, I've been increasingly convicted that when, when God makes it available to me that I am purchasing goods and that the purchasing of those goods that the, is, is built off of the backs of people who have been exploited, I have a Christian responsibility to not support those companies. I, I, look, at, I want to be real clear. That's dicey and hard to figure out. And I'm not, my goal here is not that you start combing through every expenditure and start reaching, like, trying to every company and every, you can't do that. That's not reasonable. But as the, but I mean, do you care? 
Maybe just start with that. Do you care? Or are you like, you know what? I like my coffee. I don't care. I like my shoes. I don't care. Like to, to be a Christian is to be someone who says, listen, I, I don't want to be spending money in ways that I know consciously result in the exploitation of others. You ought to take that seriously this morning. So that's the second sin, exploiting. Third sin, third warning, indulging. James, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. Notice what the text says here. You have lived a life on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. Now the word for indulgence means to pamper yourself apart from recognizing the needs of others. And so here James has this picture. He says the wealthy are consuming more, they're getting fatter, and they are preparing for the day of slaughter. He, he says that the, the wealthy are like those cows that are going, man, this grass is so good. They just, boss just keeps giving us more grass. Wonder why that is. All the while preparing for the day of slaughter. The, the picture, James says, is like you are not to be living luxuriously and in self-indulgent ways. The word luxury in the Bible is not always negative. The word self-indulgence is and so here the picture is that, is that they are, instead of thinking about the needs of others in their lives, they are primarily, exclusively concerned with their own. Let me ask you a question. Do you, when it comes to money, do you regularly think about what you can get, how much you can get, or how much you can give? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, famous Methodist theologian, writer. I mean, you could read him all day on money. John Wesley earned the equivalent in his lifetime of $50 million. He, uh, he lived at a time where you could live, the average person could live on 30 pounds a year. And when, when John Wesley, he lived on 28 pounds, and when he made 30 pounds... That first year, he gave two pounds away to the needy. And then the next year, he made 60 pounds. He lived on 28 pounds, and he gave 32 pounds away to the needy. He got in trouble one time. He got uh, um, audited by, uh, by his government about his taxes because they said, there's no way you don't own a silver plate. And Wesley said, I own two silver spoons. I keep one there and one there. You read Wesley, every time he made more money, he gave more away. When John Wesley died, he died with very little money. He was so convicted because Wesley had been decorating his, um, his living quarters when he was uh, a young man, and he had spent all of his pocket money that day, and he got a knock on the door from one of his neighbors who was cold and didn't have a jacket. And he instantly felt in that moment as though God had said to him, hey, you spent all this money on yourself. You should have bought her a jacket. So Wesley lived with this posture. Wesley had these great famous rules for wealth. He said, you should try to earn as much as you can. You should try to save as much as you can. You should try to give as much as you can. As, a, as the great uh, teacher and pastor Kent Crawford has often said, every year as a Christian, you should try to give a little more, spend a little less. 
Here's our problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. Let's just be really honest about it. When we get more money, what typically increases for us as Christians is our standard of living. What ought to increase is our standard of giving. Let me ask you, what increases for you? Your standard of living, is that the first to go? Your standard of living, or is it your standard of giving? I'm not saying, you might say, well, Trevor, like how, many, how many cars can I own? How many, how many, uh, how many couches? How many homes? Like, like how much is too much? And I, I think when adults look at money and they ask how much is too much, to me they often sound like teenagers asking how far is too far. Like you're just asking the wrong question. Unless the question is, how much can I give? How generous can I be? That's the question you ought to be asking. The fourth, the fourth and final warning. So third was indulging. Fourth is oppressing. Oppressing is using power to destroy others. Notice James verse, chapter 5, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This verse is a little bit tricky in this whole section, but most commentators land this verse as a way of understanding that the wealth were living by the old school golden rule. The wealthy were living by the old school golden rule. I don't know if you know the golden rule back in the day. Whoever has the gold gets to make the rules. That is how they were living. They were using their wealth to oppress others. A few years ago, I was with uh, my daughter. We were in Washington, D.C. I went to the National Archives where you can see the Declaration of Independence. You can see it in person. It was, we were there. No one was trying to steal it. There's nothing on the back of it. We were assured. But you get to see um, the Declaration of Independence right up close. It's amazing, right? And the Declaration of Independence, I was telling Zoe, my daughter, we were looking at it going like, this document is the document where the founding fathers of our country declared that we have rights given to us by God. And this, is, this is the piece of paper. It's amazing. We left the National Archives and we, uh, hailed, we picked up an Uber. And we get in the Uber and the guy driving us had a thick accent. And I started, you know, talking to the Uber driver as I sometimes do. And I asked the Uber driver, you know, hey, where are you from? And he said, Cameroon. I said, oh, how long you been in stateside? He said, oh, I've been in the stateside, you know, for a few months. And I said, what brought you to the United States? And he said, the United States, I came here because this is a country that believes that people have rights. And I looked at Zoe and I was like, are we, like, what? We just, we literally are walking out of the, the building with the document that declares what he is saying is the reason that he is here. And I said, what do you mean we believe in rights? And he said, in my country in Cameroon, it is not uncommon for a rich person to drive over a poor person and for no one to do anything about it because the rich have more rights than the poor. Now, I am not suggesting that in our country, we do a perfect job all the time at making sure that everybody is cared for. In fact, as sinners, we mess this up constantly. But I am declaring that we believe as Christians that every single person is made in the image of God. Therefore, I don't care how much money you have, you are in no way, shape, or form worth more than any other human being. 
Human beings are all made in the image of God. They all stand before God, equally sinful, equally in need of God's redemption. And as Christians, we believe that being rich does not make you better than the poor. And we believe that too often people who are rich look down on the poor, believing somehow that they are inherently worth more than the poor. This is not okay. And it is not okay to use your wealth and power in any way to oppress others. Because, and this might be the most important thing I say this morning about riches. If you only get one thing, I hope this is the thing that you get. As Christians, we believe you don't own anything. This is the most important thing I possibly say. When I say your money, like I recognize the Bible says like you have money, but your money is not yours. Everything you have is God's, and everything you have God has given you, and he has only asked you and called you to be a faithful steward or manager of his stuff. This is why we believe that the wealthiest people who also have the fear of God, and by fear of God here I mean they recognize that all their wealth is from God and they will ultimately be accountable to God, are some of the most generous people in the world. Because what's true is that all of us will stand before God one day and that God has every right to ask us, how did you use the money I gave you and did you use it for what I gave you to use it for? Or did you begin to believe that it's yours? Brother, sister, hear me. This is the most important thing you could ever think about your money. Your money isn't yours. God has given it to you. He's given you everything. Your heart that's beating right now, he gave it to you. The breath right now in your lungs, he gave it to you. The fact that you're here, he gave it to you. The chair that you're sitting on, the ground, he gave it to you. Your bank account, he gave It's all from him. It's all a gift. And to be a Christian is to say, God, everything you've given me is a gift. And so I want to live as though I am using everything you've given me for your glory. The great Henry Nouwen, a kind of Catholic teacher passed away, he wrote a real small book on fundraising, changed the way I thought about fundraising for the Christian. He said, the Christian does not go to another believer and say, will you give me any of your money? But a Christian goes to another believer and says, has God given you any money to give to us? That framing is so important. Because what it declares, it's a reminder, your money's not yours. And make no mistake, you'll be held accountable for it. So let me ask you, is each dollar you spend to the glory of God? And if it is not, you ought to repent. God, I am so sorry that I have used money in ways that are primarily about me. They are self-indulgent ways. They are exploitative ways. They are hoarding ways. They don't think about giving at all. They think about getting. I'm trying to build my own kingdom. I am less reliant on you. God, forgive me and help me treat each thing you give me, each dollar, each paycheck that comes in as though it is for your kingdom and your glory. Does God want you to have food on your table? Of course does God want you to provide for your family? Of course. Can we go too far? Of course. All right, those are the four warnings. Let me wrap up with one point of encouragement. 
one point of encouragement. Here it is. You ready? God is going to judge us. Okay, wait a second. I know that doesn't sound very encouraging. But I want you to see that it is. I hope that you saw it throughout the text as we went along, that the judgment of God is very much real. The word misery early on. Your wages will testify against you. The, the Lord Almighty. There will be a slaughter. When we hear those things, we tend to think, I don't know that I believe in those things. Well, again, just quickly, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip back to Luke one more time. This time I want you to open up to Luke chapter 16. Because often when we read texts like James 5, we go like, slaughter, that's hard language. Like, I'm not sure if I believe in that. I'm not sure if I believe in judgment. I'm not sure if I believe in accountability. I'm not really sure that there's going to be things that are going to testify against me. I'm not sure if I get that. Luke chapter 16, in verse uh, 19, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says that this is Jesus' teaching. Jesus, it says, Jesus says there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. So quite a rich man. He lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar, poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. Probably maybe from laying down too much. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, this is Jesus teaching, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Then, then the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Notice that in Luke 16, Jesus says that the rich man ignores the poor. That's in verse 20. Notice that he ignores the warnings of Moses and the prophets as his brothers do in verse 29. And notice that Jesus says for this man, there is torment and agony and permanence all throughout this text. So some people say like, I don't believe in all this judgment. I don't believe in the slaughter. That sounds too harsh. Well, Jesus does and I'm going with him. I hope you would too. And let me show you real quickly as we close why you should. If you're a non-Christian, 
When you hear stories about Bernie Madoff, when you hear about the poor being exploited, when you hear that some people are dying because they are eating way too much food, while some people in the world are dying because they don't have enough food, when you hear about hoarding and selfishness and you look at the poor and you feel compassion on them and there's something in you that says, this is wrong and is anybody going to do anything about it? The Bible's answer is yes. Yes. God is the judge, and he is a good, right, and fair judge. If you are not a Christian this morning, but you, you, you get, it angers you when you see wealth misused, it should anger you, it angers God too, and God will do something about it. You should want to be a Christian. You should want to believe in judgment. You should want to believe that at the end of the day, a really good God who is both loving and just will really do something about the fact that people misuse what he has given them. But there's a problem, which is as we read this text, we recognize, hold on, I haven't treated my own money as though it belongs to God. I I have hoarded sometimes. I I have exploited, I've purchased things or I've not paid my debts or I have cheated someone out of something. I I have self-centeredly indulged, thought about myself before my neighbors. I, I, I may be guilty of using my wealth to oppress others. Judgment is a good thing. Judgment is a terrifying thing because For non-Christians, what it means is that you will stand before God and God will ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're ready for that moment and you've got some explanation you're going to give to God that you think is going to work, like, good luck to you. There's better news for you. And that is that God sees that we do not use his resources as we should. And if we are truly repentant and we say, God, I'm so sorry, would you forgive me? Lord, here's my sin. God's response is, I have sent my son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for all your sins, your financial sins included, that if you believe in me, you will have life forever and there is no condemnation for you. You can be totally and completely forgiven. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you deal with any guilt, you don't have to manage your guilt. You can be forgiven and set free of that guilt in and through what God has done for you in Jesus. You just have to let Jesus take control of your life. He can't sit in the back seat. He can't sit in the passenger seat. He's got to sit in the driver's seat. You've got to say, God, I confess that I have not loved you with my money. I have not loved my neighbor with my money. Forgive me. I believe in Jesus. You've offered me your grace. I receive your grace. Help me to follow you. I believe in you. I trust in you. That's what you've got to do. And if you want to be a Christian this morning, grab me before you leave. I'd love to pray with you. But if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, I want to remind you that you are already forgiven by God. You are already forgiven by what he has done. And he has been so generous to you. God who has all the riches in the world has been generous to you. He gave you riches, but beyond that, he gave you his son. He gave you grace. He gave you forgiveness, the promise of life forever with him. 
What God has given you is worth more than gold, more than diamonds, more than precious metals. It's worth more than anything. So if God has been so generous to you, until you understand how generous he's been to you, you'll always live as though you're responsible for yourself, when in actuality, you are to live as though God truly is your God. Christian, non-Christian, you can be rich today and poor forever, or you can be poor today and rich forever. But what the Bible says is that what we hold on to, we will ultimately lose. But if we give it to God, we gain what can never be taken from us, namely God himself. I hope this morning you are convicted. I hope this morning you are repentant. I hope this morning that you celebrate that God's justice will prevail and that his grace is available to all. I hope that we sing knowing that we've been forgiven. I hope that we sing and rejoice knowing that God has been generous to us. I hope that we live lives treating the things God has given us as though they are his, as though he is, we were ultimately responsible for standing before him in regards to how we use them, and that one day, one day, we will have him in the fullest sense, and he is greater than all the riches in the world. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning who have been hoarding. God, forgive them for the sin of hoarding. By your spirit, would you powerfully move in them that they would repent and find in you forgiveness and grace and that they might rejoice. God, I pray this morning for those who are here who have been exploiting. God, I pray that this morning that they would, by your spirit, be made aware of their sin, that they would repent, they would receive your forgiveness, and they would rejoice in your grace. For those who are indulging, who are thinking about themselves and not thinking about the needs of their neighbors. Lord, I pray that they would repent, that they would experience your forgiveness, they would rejoice this morning. I pray for those who are oppressed others using their power of wealth to harm or hurt others in any sense. Lord, I pray that we would live as though everything we have belongs to you. Help us to repent this morning, to rejoice in your grace and forgiveness. And God, help us to look forward to the day when you truly will judge and make all things right when you truly will hold the rich accountable for their riches, where you truly will reveal to those who have been taken advantage of that you are their God and that you hear the cries of the poor and the oppressed. Up and until that day, God, I pray against dead faith. I pray against the kind of faith that claims to be Christian but does not live like it, especially as it pertains to what you have given us. So help us honor you with our wealth in all that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>